0: See if anybody caught that, we're we're actually done with our sermon series on Nehemiah. You can actually open your Bibles to the New Testament this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be starting a new sermon series this morning leading up to Easter called Hallelujah, What a Savior, and we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians this morning. And so um, I have a Timex watch, and contrary to popular belief, I do look at it on Sunday mornings to make sure that we're on time. But you remember the old um, saying with the Timex watch, it takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Um, there's, there's such a thing as these, these, these durable watches. Has anybody ever heard of, a, um, of an, of an explosion proof wall clock? Anybody have an explosion proof wall clock in their house in case you just happen to be in an explosion? Uh, back in the 1950s, during the, uh, the Cold War scare, when people were building bomb shelters and things like that, uh, this company, Krauss & Heinz, they manufactured this explosion-proof wall clock. It was made with um, 40 pounds of shatterproof cover, and it said that in the midst of a nuclear explosion, it would keep perfect time. Don't you want a watch that keeps perfect time, especially in a nuclear explosion? Just in case you forget what time it is, you want a perfect watch. Now, it's also been said of Ringo Starr of the Beatles that he was the perfect drummer. He's been the perfect drummer of of all time because he could keep perfect time. He can keep perfect rhythm. So let me ask you a question. When you think of perfect time, you think of perfect rhythm, is there such a thing as perfection, really perfect, perfection, now, think about the Olympics for a moment. Very rarely, and even in, in our new Olympics, they don't give out perfect scores anymore. And in 1976, prior to 1976, no man or woman gymnast ever got a perfect score in gymnastics in the Olympics until Nadia Comaneci came along. You remember the little um, girl from Romania? In the, I don't remember it, I was five years old, but um, some of you probably remember it. She was a 14-year-old Romanian girl. Nadia Comaneci, she not only got one perfect 10, does anybody remember how many she got? Seven perfect 10s in the Olympics. That's amazing. A perfect 10. Is there such a thing as perfection in this fallen world? How many of you here are 100% perfect 100% of the time? Anybody want to raise their hand and say, I am perfect. Is there really such a thing as perfection? We throw that word around a lot. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Over the next few weeks, we're going to study and look at and gaze upon the only one who was perfect. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This morning, we're going to look at His life, the sinless life of our Savior. Next week, we're going to look at the sacrificial death of our Savior and then on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so let's think about the words that we've just sung to this powerful hymn. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was He to die, it is finished, was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransom home to bring, then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. I want us to dive into probably one of the most profound passages of Scripture in the New Testament. A mind-boggling, wonderful, glorious passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One commentator has said there's no sentence more profound in the whole Bible than this one sentence we will be looking at. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 starting in verse 17 through 21, and we're going to camp out on verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here is the Mount Everest of the Bible in the New Testament. For our sake... For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want us to be blown away over the next few weeks by this one statement in verse 21. Jesus who had no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean that Jesus became sin? We'll look at that next week. What does it mean that Jesus had no sin? We'll look at that today. And what does it mean that we're the righteousness of God? That, that that's, that's all comes together in, in the resurrection. Now, most of you would probably agree with me today that Jesus never sinned. There's probably no argument about there among evangelical Christians that that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life of perfect obedience to God the Father. We all agree with that, hopefully. But let me ask you a question this morning. When did your salvation occur? Was it at the cross? Yes. Was it at the resurrection? Yes. Is it going to be at the second coming? Yes. Yes. But when did it start? When did your salvation start? It started in time, the moment Jesus left the glories of heaven and was born as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. You could say this, the moment Jesus became a man, he started paying for your sins. Now, we don't think in terms like that, do we? Because we always think, well, I thought Jesus paid for my sins on the cross. And yes, he did pay for our sins on the cross, and we'll look at that next week. But before the cross, there's the perfect life of Christ. And so the moment that Christ became, became flesh, the moment that he entered into humanity, bearing all the things that we bear, fully God, fully man, that's the moment that he started purchasing for us our salvation. I'm going to say something this morning that may be a little confusing, but I believe it's wholeheartedly biblical, so hang with me for a moment because some of you are going to think, what in the world is he talking about? If all Jesus did was die on the cross for our sins, we would be forgiven, we would be cleansed, but we would not be able to go to heaven. Now before you hang hang with me here, okay? If all Jesus did was was die on the cross for our sins, it would get us back to a state of neutrality. Our sins would be forgiven. We would have a blank slate. We would be like Adam and Eve were in the garden before they sinned. Is that enough to get you into heaven? A blank slate? No. You and I need something else to get us into heaven. We need a positive righteousness. We need to be able to be made Righteous, not just innocent, not just cleansed, not just forgiven. As great as those things are, we need those things, but those aren't enough to get you to heaven. You need a positive righteousness, which begs the question, well, where do I get this positive righteousness? Do I manufacture this righteousness? Can I earn this righteousness? Can I somehow produce this righteousness? Can I do enough good to get me in a good standing to somehow be righteous enough to be accepted by God? Listen to what Isaiah says about our righteousness. I really can't quote the original Hebrew in a a, a public gathering among mixed company, but this is what Isaiah 64, 6 says. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You go back to the Hebrew and look and see what that image refers to. So we have to understand something here. Without the perfect life of Christ, none of us would ever be saved. We often focus on the death, which we'll do next week. We often focus on the resurrection, which we will on Easter Sunday. But how often do we focus upon his life? The 33 years that Jesus lived on this earth you need you and i need the life of christ just as much as we need the death of christ so here's the big question for this morning here's the big issue for this morning here's the big statement jesus earned for us what we could never earn ourselves and what is that perfect obedience to god's law Jesus earned for us what we can never earn ourselves, perfect obedience to God's law. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see three issues related to the life of Christ. Now some of this is going to be instruction. I want to instruct you. I want to teach you. I want to train you. But I don't want to just leave it there at instruction. I also want this to lead to inspiration. I want to instruct and inspire. Because if all I do this morning is teach, I've failed. This teaching should lead you to worship. If all we do is just fill our heads with knowledge and it never leads to worship, we've only gone half the way. So I'm going to teach you some things about the sinless life of Christ, but I hope it leads you to worship Jesus and say that song over and over in your head this week. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So first of all, what's the first issue? The first issue is the intense problem. Houston, we have a problem, an intense problem. And this intense problem goes all the way back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden. So in Genesis chapter 2, 16 through 17, the Lord God commanded the man, this is Adam, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, this is God's covenant. With Adam, This is God's covenant with Adam. And so what did God tell Adam? This is the first command ever in the Bible where God gives a command to human beings. And it's a very simple command. Adam, you can eat of any tree. There's freedom here. You can eat of all these trees, but there's one tree. There's one prohibition. There's one tree that you cannot eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's the stipulation, Adam. Here's the covenant. If you obey, if you you don't eat of that tree you will live. If you do eat of that tree, you will surely die. That was God's covenant. God demanded obedience from Adam. Adam, I need you to obey me. I'm giving you a command, and I want you to obey. Now, we don't know how long Adam waited until he disobeyed. The Bible doesn't tell us, but what do we know Adam did? He failed the test, didn't he? He disobeyed. He ate the fruit. Now, before you get mad at Adam you and I would have done the same thing given enough time. We would have eaten the fruit as well. So what happened when Adam ate the fruit? What was the penalty for the covenant? God said, if you eat this, you will what? Die. Now let's find out what happens. At the very end of that chapter, chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken. He drove out the man. Now let me just stop right there and tell you what the Hebrew, when, when, when God says he drove out the man, it's actually in the original language a word that was used for divorce. It's almost as if God divorced Adam and Eve and sent them out of the garden. He banished them out of the garden. He, he sent them out of the garden of Eden, east of the garden, placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to The tree of life so Adam and Eve were banished from the garden was there immediate death in a sense there was no physical death was there but there was spiritual death there was a spiritual death that happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God and there was a banishment there was a kicking out they got kicked out of the garden now here's the issue there are great there are great implications for us today because here's the issue adam failed in personal obedience did he not all god said to do was obey me adam failed the test so here's what happens to us this is what theologians call the federal headship of adam now what in the world is the federal headship of adam this is what the federal headship of adam basically means it means this because adam was the first man He is the representative for the entire human race. And so what Adam does as our representative, all of us are bound to what he has done. Think about it this way. Let's say this week President Obama goes out and signs a peace treaty with another nation. And as President of the United States, he's acting on behalf of the people. And so he goes as our representative, he makes a peace treaty, and when he makes that peace treaty, all of us as Americans are binding upon that peace treaty. Now, what happens if a week later, President Obama goes and breaks the peace treaty? He goes and he breaks it because he's the head of state. He has the right to do that. He doesn't consult us. He just goes and he breaks the treaty. By 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 vicarious connection, all of us would be held accountable to the breaking of the peace treaty because the president did. He's our representative. Now, you may say, I don't like that. It wasn't my choice. It was the president's choice, and I don't like what he does and I understand that. You can say, why, do, why am I held accountable for something the, the president did? Well, it's because he's your representative. Same thing with Adam. We may say, well, I don't like what Adam did. I wasn't there in the garden. Why do I have to be affected by what Adam did? It wasn't my choice. It's his. Why do I have to be held accountable for what Adam did? Well, turn with me in your Bibles real quick to Romans chapter 5. Just go over a couple books back. In Romans chapter 5, we find out that we are held accountable Because Adam is our federal representative, because he's our head, because he's the head of the human race, he's our our ultimate representative, what Adam did in the garden has implications upon every single person born into this world today. There's nobody exempt from this except for Jesus Christ. So what what implication do we have from Adam's fall? Romans 5, 12. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, that's talking about Adam, through the one man. How to, sin came in through Adam. What resulted? Death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. As our representative, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, we all, every single human being, have inherited his guilt. We have all been plunged into a state of depravity. So, whether you like it or not, the moment that you're conceived in your mother's womb, you are said to be in Adam. You are a sinner. You've inherited the guilt from Adam, you've inherited that culpability. You and I are sinners. And so, here's the issue Adam failed the test. Adam failed the test. The test was obedience. He failed it. What happened? He got kicked out of the garden. Now, let's think about Israel for a moment. Okay, who was Israel? God's chosen people. Does anybody know what God called the nation Israel? He called Israel, My firstborn son. Israel was God's firstborn son. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 4.22... God said to Moses, you still say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So let's ask the question. Adam, the first human, failed the test, was kicked out of the garden. What do we know about Israel, the firstborn son of God? Did they pass the test? No. Hopefully you say no. If you've read your Old Testament, you know. And here's the interesting thing. At the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, after Moses comes down, Moses gives them the Ten Commandments. And there's this amazing statement that the nation of Israel says when, when, when Moses gives them the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 24, verses 7-8, listen to what the nation says. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Do you notice what they said? The whole nation stands up right there and says, All right, we will do everything that you command us to do. God, we're going to do it. How long did it take for them to disobey that? Very long, five, five seconds. <laughs> Not very long. We'll do everything. Now, what happened to that first generation? The generation that stood there and says, we'll do all this. They disobeyed God. Joshua and Caleb came and said, we can take the land. They failed to listen to Joshua and Caleb. They don't go in and take the promised land. So they wander for 40 years in the desert, and what ends up happening to them? They die. That first generation dies in the desert because they did not pass the test of obedience god said obey they said we'll do it they did not do it they died in the desert now ultimately what happened to the nation of israel we just finished a sermon series on nehemiah what was the whole context what eventually happened to the nation of israel because of their disobedience they got what kicked out of the land 70 years of exile so do you see a pattern here adam disobeyed gets kicked out of the garden Israel disobeys, gets kicked out of the promised land. There's this whole idea that that Adam failed the test, gets kicked out. Israel fails the test, gets kicked out. And so let's just think about something here for a moment. If Adam failed the test and Israel failed the test, do we think we're going to pass the test? I mean, think about this. The, The first man that was perfect and the nation of Israel who was God's chosen son, they both failed. What hope is there for us? If those two can't do it, there is no hope for us. It's an intense problem. But even in the midst of this disobedience, even in the midst of this disobedience, there's a foreshadowing of grace. One of the things you need to realize about the Old Testament, there's grace all over the Old Testament. There's types and shadows of Jesus all over the old testament what does god do right after he banishes adam and eve out of the garden you know think about this could god and and, and rightfully be god could he have said after adam and eve sinned could he have said and been totally god and been totally true to his word could he have said okay we're stopping this human race thing right now both of you are going to hell we're done could he have done that and been totally just Yes, he could have done that and been totally just. But what does he do? I want you to notice something that God does. It's grace. Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God clothes them. So we have to ask a question. How did God clothe them? What did he have to do to get animal skins? God had to kill an animal. God did not demand a blood sacrifice from Adam and Eve. He killed another in the place of Adam and Eve, demanded blood from an animal, and covered them. That's a picture of Jesus right there in the first pages of the Bible. Same thing with Israel. With the Passover and the Day of Atonement, instead of demanding a blood sacrifice for the people themselves, God said in the Old Testament, we're going to sacrifice another. We're going to sacrifice a bull or a goat or a lamb in the place of the people, and that is going to cover their sins. And so what we see from this intense problem, because Israel failed and because Adam failed and because we're going to fail, the ultimate need is that we need a mediator. We need someone to stand in the gap. We need someone to be in our place. And that's where Jesus comes in. So we've seen the intense problem. Let's look, secondly, at the incredible solution. I want you to notice something. Who failed the test? Adam and Israel. Do you know what Jesus is called in the New Testament? The second Adam and the true Israel. The second Adam and the true Israel come to do what the first Adam and the, and the nation of Israel could never do. What could those two, Adam and Israel, what could they not do? Perfectly obey God. Now, let's go down, and hopefully your Bible is still open to Romans chapter 5. We looked at verse 12. Let's go down and look at verses 17 through 19. Because Paul is making a comparison here between Adam and and Jesus, the first Adam and the second Adam. And he's saying because of what Adam did, there's some implications for us, but because of what Jesus did, there's some wonderful implications for us. So let's, let's follow his train of thought here. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. If, because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, his sin, death reigned through that one man. So what happened when Adam sinned? Death reigned. Death came and had its grip on people. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus Christ came, what what does he offer? Abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness. And look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass leads to condemnation for all men, that's us, Adam's one sin led to condemnation for all of us, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Because of Adam's disobedience, we're all sinners. But what does it say here? Because of Jesus' obedience, his obedience, and we'll look at that. What does it mean, Jesus' obedience? The many will be made righteous. So, how do we become righteous? How do we become accepted? How do we go from just having our sins forgiven? Because remember, if Jesus just forgave our sins and that's all, we would be back to, we have our debt paid, like in a bank account, we'd have our, debt, our negative debt paid, but it would give us to zero. It would give us to a zero balance. Is zero a positive balance? No, we need a positive balance that comes from the obedience of Christ. We cannot produce this. Only Jesus does this in his perfection. So how do we see Jesus earning our righteousness? What does Jesus do? As the, as the second Adam, as the true Israel, how does Jesus earn for us righteousness? Well, first of all, it goes to the incarnation. When Jesus came in the flesh, when Jesus added humanity to his divinity, when he was born as a baby, when he came in the flesh, that was the first moment that the obedience began. So when Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem, that's when the obedience began. We see this in Philippians 2, 6-8. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the moment that Jesus stepped foot out of heaven, put on humanity, was born in a manger, came as a human being, that's the moment that our salvation started being purchasing. Now yes, it eventually happened at the cross, but but the moment that Jesus left the glories of heaven and became fully God and fully man there at that moment in time, at the birth, at the incarnation, that's when the process started. So how else did Jesus earn our righteousness? Well, at his baptism. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. One more place this morning. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is coming, and John's baptizing people in the wilderness, and and Jesus comes out and says, "I, I need to be baptized, and let's see what happens. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all, what? Righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now we have to ask a question. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now why does Jesus get baptized? Does Jesus need to repent of any sin? Does Jesus have any sin in his life that needs to be cleansed? Why in the world would the sinless, perfect Savior have to be baptized? If he had no sin, why go under the waters of baptism? Jesus said it's to fulfill all righteousness. This is the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Up up to that point, he's not been publicly on the scene yet. Yes, he was born in a manger and we have a few accounts of his life, but his public ministry doesn't start until this moment. And what does God the Father say from heaven? This is my son. And what does he say about Jesus? With whom I am well pleased. Now let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian here this morning, don't you long to hear that from your heavenly Father? This is my child with whom I am well pleased. Can God say that to us without the righteousness of Christ. Can God look down upon our lives and say, I am pleased with you, I accept you, I forgive you on the basis of anything within us? Can God do that? No, he has to do that on the basis of Christ. All right, what about the wilderness? Let's go into Matthew chapter 4. His incarnation, his baptism. Now, before Jesus starts doing public miracles, where does he go? Before he starts doing public miracles, he's just been baptized in all the gospel accounts. Where does he go? He goes into the wilderness. For how many days? Forty days. How many days was Israel in the wilderness? Forty years. There's no mistaking there. What is Jesus? He's the true Israel. So right now, Jesus, the true Israel, is going into the wilderness for 40 days to do what the nation of Israel could not do for 40 years. And what's that? Pass the test of obedience. Past the test of obedience. So let's read what happens. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting scripture there from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Quoting scripture here, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, did Jesus pass the test? Yes. Did Israel pass the test? No. What was Israel called? The firstborn son. Who's Jesus? The firstborn one and only son of God. Adam failed the test. Jesus comes as the second Adam and passes the test. Israel failed the test. Jesus comes as the true Israel and passes the test. Now, what else does the Bible say about the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ? What else does the Bible say about that? Well, in Luke chapter 24, Pilate, on three occasions, says to the crowd and says to Jesus, I find no fault in this man. I find him innocent. The thief on the cross looked at Jesus and said, this is an innocent man. But what else does the Scripture say? Here's probably um, one of the most famous passages of Scripture, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was t- This is an amazing thing to think about. Did Jesus ever sin in thought, word, or deed? No. Even as a teenager. A thought. I mean, how many bad thoughts do you and I have just this morning driving to church? How many careless things have we said out of our mouths? How many crazy things have we done Indeed, I mean, you stack up just in a week's worth how much sin you do in your thought, your word, and your deed, and you'd be shocked if somebody showed it up here on the screen. You'd want to go and hide. Just your thought life. Jesus never once sinned in thought, word, or deed but was tempted in every way that we were. That's staggering. He never sinned, never once sinned in thought, in word, or deed, which is an amazing thing when you think about having to put up with those disciples for three years. Never had a negative thought, even about Judas. Hebrews 7, 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This says that Jesus is the high priest, is innocent, unstained. He never once sinned. How about First Peter 2, 22 through 23? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He committed no sin. And how about one other place, 1 John 3, 5? You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now let's go back to our, our text that we started out with this morning. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who what? Knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. So we need both the life and the death of Christ. We'll get to the death next week. But we need more than just innocence. We need more than just a clean slate. We need more than just being back to neutral. We need more than just how Adam and Eve were in the garden before they fell. We need more than just our sins forgiven. We need a positive righteousness to get us into heaven. And the only way that positive righteousness comes to us is because Jesus did it for 33 years of perfect obedience to the Father in thought, word, and deed. And so that leads us to the third issue this morning. We've seen the intense problem. We've seen the incredible solution. But what's the inspiring response? What is our response to this? Do you realize, Christian, I hope you realize this, Jesus' perfect record of 33 years has been credited to your record so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' record, not yours. Praise the Lord. Jerry Bridger said it this way. It is nothing less than perfect conformity to the law of God over a period of 33 years by the Son of God who became a human being and lived a life of perfect obedience. Christ's record of 100% obedience he earned for us. And by faith, by faith, when you trust in Christ for salvation, when you believe in Jesus for salvation, you hear the words, That Jesus heard at his baptism. What did Jesus hear at his baptism? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. When you are saved, when you trust Christ, the father now looks down upon your life and says, this is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. You can now enter heaven because I don't see your record. I see the record of Christ in your place. And because of what he did, you get to go in. Amen. Because if it was our record, would any of us be able to get in? Jesus lived that perfect life of obedience. Robert Haldane was a Scottish pastor back in the 1800s, and he said this, To that righteousness is the eye of every believer ever to be directed. On that righteousness must he rest. On that righteousness must he live. On that righteousness must he die. On that righteousness must he appear before the judgment seat. And that righteousness must he stand forever in the presence of a righteous God. Can you and I ever pass the test? If Adam didn't do it, if Israel didn't do it, let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we can do it. Anybody here 100% perfect, 100% of the time, in thought, word, and deed? If you are, you're lying, and there you go, breaking that pattern. I just broke it. Well, I'm, I'm perfect for a second. No, I'm talking about 33 years of prolonged obedience to, to everything that God commanded him to None of us can do that. Never in a million years. We need the second Adam. We need the true Israel to come and do what the first Adam and the, and, and the nation of Israel can never do. And so, think about this statement that Jesus made in John eight twenty nine. He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Can you and I say that? I always do the things that are pleasing to God. Who's the only person that can say that with a straight face? Jesus. I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. So here's the good news for you this morning. You can have this positive righteousness because of the 33 years of perfect obedience that Jesus lived on your behalf. But how do you get it? How do you get this righteousness? Do you somehow manufacture it? Do you strum it up within yourself and say, if I'm just good enough, If if at the end of my life, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds on the proverbial scale, then by by some strange thing, God's going to look at my life and he says, okay, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You've been a good person. You've gone to church. You've gone through confirmation. You've got baptized. You didn't run over an old lady when she was in the middle of the road. I fed my dog. I was a good guy. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I never committed adultery. I didn't do anything bad. Hopefully, I'll cross my fingers. God will let me in. Is that how you produce the righteousness? If that's the way you do it all of us are sunk you and i cannot produce this righteousness we can't make ourselves righteous here's what we do we trust in a substitute we trust in the one who is righteous for us so here's the thing the the very moment That very moment when you stop trusting in yourself and stop trusting in your righteousness and stop trusting in what you can do to produce this, the moment that you stop all that, the moment that you repent from that, the moment that you turn from that, that you turn from your life of sin and you turn towards Christ, the moment that you receive him, the moment that you accept him, the moment that you trust him, the moment that you place your faith in him, the moment that you call upon his name, guess what happens. At that moment, your record is forever canceled in God's sight and you're given the record of Christ forever to stand before him just like that that's an amazing truth of the gospel that at the moment that you believe in christ for salvation by faith in christ you're standing this is the way god looks at you god looks at your life as if you've lived the life of jesus now you haven't lived the life of jesus but god looks at you as if you've lived the life of jesus 100% perfect in thought, word, and deed. And based upon what God sees, God can make a declaration upon your life and say, not guilty, accepted, beloved, I'm pleased with you. Now enter heaven because you're ready to come in because you have the righteousness of Christ. He earned for us what we could never earn ourselves. So before we get to the cross next week, which next week is going to be very profound, he who knew no sin became sin, it's a mind-boggling passage of Scripture. He who knew no sin, we got to start there. He knew no sin, that's what we've looked at today, became sin so that you and I could be the righteousness of God. Before we get to the cross, we've got to look at his life. And so what I'm, I'm hoping that you understand this morning is that you need Jesus' 33 years of perfect obedience as much as you need those hours of him dying on the cross. You need both. And then you need his victorious resurrection or we're still dead in our sins. And so here's my plea for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in yourself, and you know deep down in your heart you're trusting in yourself, you know that you're trusting in your own righteousness and you've, you've played a game. I'm gonna go to church. And maybe you walked in here today and said this is my first time in this church and, and I'm kind of guilty so I wanna go to church so I can feel better about myself. Let me just give you a little bit of, of encouragement this morning. You've come to the right place I'd rather have you come to church than go somewhere else, but stop looking inside yourself and stop looking to all these things that you do to earn God's favor and simply trust. Salvation is not an achieving, it's a receiving. It's not something you achieve, it's something you receive. And if you're here this morning and you've never received this free gift of salvation, You've never trusted Christ fully with your entire life. You've never repented of your sin and turned from your sin and turned towards Christ and said, Christ, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. I believe that I can't produce this perfection. I have to trust in what you've done for me. I know that if I stand before God in my own perfection, if I stand before God in myself, I would be obliterated off the map and spend eternity in hell. I trust you. Today, the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will Be saved. So why don't you get saved today? Can't talk you into it, but I can sure extend the invitation to say, why don't you get saved today? Stop trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying and trying harder, and I'm just getting tired talking about trying, and rest and trust in the one who lived a perfect life for you and was obedient for you and the moment you trust in this one, His record becomes your record, and God says, "You're my beloved child. I am well pleased with you. Enter into heaven forever. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And maybe you're here today, and you're, and you're just flat out trusting in yourself. Are you trusting in religion? or you're trusting in your spirituality, or you're trusting in something that's not Jesus, and you, you so desperately want to be accepted by God, you so desperately want to somehow know that you're going to go to heaven when you die, and you so desperately want all these things, but you're going about it in the wrong way by trusting in, in what you can produce. Let me just encourage you, in this time of prayer, stop trusting in yourself and turn and look at the Savior who's done it for you in his perfect life, his obedient death, and his glorious resurrection. So if you've never trusted Christ before, make today the day of your salvation. And Christian, if you're here this morning and and you've forgotten this truth and, and, and you just need to be encouraged that on your worst days, when you're doing everything terrible God doesn't love you less based upon your record. And on your greatest days when you're doing everything great and you're walking with Jesus, he doesn't love you more based upon your record, but he loves you perfectly based upon the record of Christ and that never changes. Rest in the security of that. So spend some time in worship this morning, just praising your your Jesus, your hallelujah, what a savior Jesus, that his record is your record and you can stand accepted before the holy God of the universe. Spend some time in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for the grace that you show us in Christ. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that we could never produce this righteousness. Lord, forgive us when we think that our righteousness is somehow getting brownie points with you in heaven. Our righteousness is filthy rags. We can do nothing to earn your love. We can do nothing to produce any of this righteousness. We just simply trust in Jesus, what you did for us. Thank you, Jesus for coming in the flesh. Thank you, Jesus, for getting baptized. Thank you, Jesus, for passing the test in the wilderness. Thank you, Jesus, for for doing your healings and your teachings. And thank you, Jesus, for never once sinning in thought, word, or deed. And thank you that that qualifies you to go to the cross, that we can look at our sinless, perfect Savior who never once sinned in thought, word, and deed. And we can love you and worship you, Jesus, and thank you that that record of yours is given to us. We don't deserve that record. We can't earn that record. We can't produce that record. All we can do is receive it by faith as a gift from a gracious God who would so love us. Great things you have done, Jesus, for us, your people. If there's anybody in this room, Lord Jesus, that doesn't know you personally as their Lord and Savior, they're trusting in themselves they're trusting in religion they're trusting in spirituality holy spirit would you grip them deeply this morning would you open the eyes of their heart to see their need for a savior would you break them down in their sin and and humble them so that they see that they can't trust themselves but the only thing they can do is turn and trust in an all-sufficient savior would you do that today holy spirit Would you cause people to be born again we love you lord jesus we thank you for the perfect record you've given us May we walk in confidence, not not just an egotistical confidence that we're all that, but walk in a confidence to know that we're not all that, but you're all that, and we can approach your throne of grace with boldness because of what you've done for us, Jesus. Give us confidence in the Lord this week to know who we are in Christ, that we've got the identity of Christ, we've got the record of Christ, we've got the obedience of Christ, not because we produced it, but because Jesus, you gave it to us as a gift. May our eyes always be on you as our great Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen.